You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Kendall White. Thank you for being here today. I'll be leading us in our scripture reading. If you have a Bible or Bible app, feel free to go ahead and open it. We'll be in Genesis 12. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you or nearby. So we'll be in Genesis 12, verse 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake." When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kendall. Good morning, church. Great to see all of you. Let me start with a question as we keep looking at Genesis this morning. The question is this, have you ever found yourself ruining the promise of a good thing by your own interference? Have you ever found yourself ruining the promise of something good because you couldn't get out of the way? I know I have. Can I tell you a story about how that happened? Yes. About 12 years ago, I was a young ministry intern finishing out my term of service at my former church. And as a celebration for my years spent there, I was invited by my pastor and his wife to dinner at Texas de Brazil. Heard of it? Mm. I just learned recently that it's not actually Tejas de Brazil, which for some reason in my mind was what I had called it my whole life. But if you are not familiar with Texas de Brazil, allow me to describe its glory. This is a restaurant where Brazilian men with giant skewers filled with grilled meat just walk around the restaurant and slice off piece after piece of beef on your plate. I'm looking at you, Lucas Cruz. The glory of it all only ends when you say, I'm out. There is an epic salad bar also, but for me in my mid-20s, I could care less. In other words, Texas de Brazil is the kind of place where you need to prepare, ideally with something like a 24-hour fast to really get the most out of the experience. Otherwise, you risk showing up just merely regular hungry. And you can finish your meal with some serious disappointment. And so there I was, the Sunday of the feast. I went through the day pretty much like normal, church responsibilities, etc. 
but something unexpected happened to me around midday in anticipation of dinner. Inexplicably, I was hungry. I mean like really hungry, not gonna make it hungry. The worst part of it was I was still five hours away from eating all the steak my little body could eat. And so I did what any reasonable person would do. I went to Subway and I crushed a foot long. And while my hunger problem was at least temporarily solved when game time came, I was toast. It wasn't just that I showed up to Texas Day Brazil with just regular hunger, I was still full. And while I tried to power through dinner and make a respectable showing, the damage was done. Instead of enduring temporary discomfort in anticipation of a promise, I took matters into my own hands, but to diminishing return. There is something like this happening in our passage today, Genesis 12, 10 through 20. In Genesis 12, verses one through three, as we saw last week, God has promised Abram that he will be the father of a nation who will serve as a source of blessing for all the world. But as we look at this passage, we're going to see that Abram is confronted with a situation that will test whether he will choose a lesser good in favor of what God declared would come to pass. In this text, we're going to look at four aspects of the narrative that frame what will be the first of many threats that will come to God's covenant promise to Abram. First, we're gonna see the problem that seems to call into question the truth of God's promise. Second, we're going to see the human interference that is offered to deal with the problem. Third, we will see the divine intervention that leads forth to the preservation of the promise. We'll look at the problem, the interference, the intervention, and the preservation. And so first, the problem. As we said in Genesis 12, one through three, God offers this remarkable promise to Abram, one that undergirds the entire narrative redemption of scripture. He says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as we saw last week, Abram, in response to this promise, followed God's command and set out for Canaan. While he is there, God appears to him again and says, to your offspring, I will give this land. Yet as we heard a moment ago, Abram was in Canaan only a little while before he is faced with significant difficulty. Verse 10 begins rather suddenly. Now there was a famine in the land. What we need to know is that famines in the land of Canaan were not altogether unheard of. The scholar Gordon Winham will note how Canaan's fluctuating rainfall made it susceptible to food shortages until the modern advent of irrigation methods. And as will be echoed in later narratives in the book of Genesis, we see here Abram responding to this famine by going down to Egypt to sojourn there, to live as a foreigner, for the famine was severe in the land. 
And so it is here at the conclusion of verse 10 that the original recipients of the book of Genesis, that nation of Israel following their exodus from the very same nation of Egypt, they would have noticed something familiar. This section with its story of Abram entering Egypt parallels directly the events that would come generations later as Jacob's descendants enter the land in response to famine in Genesis 43 and all that follows. These parallels are not by chance. God, through Moses, intends to highlight the significance of his promise to Abram and its continuity all the way through the experiences of the nation of Israel. What God promised to Abram to make him into a great nation and to bless all nations of the world through his descendants is no less in force through the experience of the people of Israel as they themselves left Egypt. Each subsequent aspect of this part of the narrative thus mirrors an event that Israel faced in their own experiences in Egypt. But for Abram, as he approached Egypt, another problem entered his view. This is the focus of verses 11 and 12. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Abram articulates what apparently was a common concern for someone in his position. A sojourner entering into a foreign land was one whose safety was not guaranteed. A sojourner with a beautiful wife and significant possessions like Abram possessed would have been even more vulnerable. His fear was that the Egyptians would see Sarai's appearance and would conspire to do away with him in order to take Sarai and his wealth for themselves. Yet, if you remember the details of the narrative prior to this section, you might be thinking, hold on, Abram at this point is 75 years old. Sarai, his wife, about 10 years younger. I don't mean to imply something overly negative, but is it really possible that a 65-year-old woman's beauty could jeopardize her husband's well-being? Do not answer that, young people. The answer, most probably, is yes. If we think about the lifespan of people during this point in history, we will know that Abram's father, Terah, lived to be 100, or 205 years old. Abram lived to be 175, and Sarah lived to be 127. Rather than aging the way that we do today, it is likely that Sarai, at age 65, was well within what we would say are the prime years of youthful feminine beauty. So it's not unreasonable for Abram to see this perceived problem as a real threat to his safety. Yet beyond this surface-level problem, the apparent threat to Abram's safety represents a deeper theological uncertainty. A threat to Abram, in this case, was a threat to God's promise. This promise, which was to make Abram a great nation, can't be fulfilled if Abram is dead. Abram's problem then is that God's promise seems to be in jeopardy. If he continues to Egypt, he runs the risk of harm because of Sarai's beauty. What is he to do? And so in response to this problem, Abram forms a plan. In Genesis 12, 13, we see the solution. 
Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Instead of acknowledging his marriage to Sarai, which would be the context in which God's promise would naturally be fulfilled, Abram instead ironically seeks to deceive the Egyptians, knowing that they would be far less likely to harm him if he was Sarai's brother rather than her husband. Though he was keenly aware of God's promises, he still sought to influence his situation in his favor by shaping the narrative before outsiders so as not to provoke what was in his mind undue risk. As the commentator Alan Ross will note, Abram's response here is actually consistent with his history as an unbelieving pagan Bedouin. He spent decades of his life worshiping other gods besides Yahweh, and it's a fairly new experience for him to have a relationship with the living God. And so yes, what happens here is not a response of faith, but it is also likely not an example of some kind of wanton rebellion. Instead, it's something in the middle, an expression of a spiritually immature person responding intuitively to his situation. So like we learned last week, Terah and his descendants, despite being in the line of Seth, they had become, by the time of Abram's calling, a people who did not worship Yahweh. And so when God calls him at age 75, he finds himself in this position. So it shouldn't be surprising for us that Abram makes a decision that reflects not a heart of faith before God, but rather an old way of living, of unbelief. Abram's situation is much like ones that you and I face on a daily basis. Not in terms of their relative intensity or severity, I hope, but rather in the way that they reveal what happens to our hearts when we are confronted with the temptation to take matters into our own hands. Whatever our history with God, it is often the case that our native unbelieving tendencies show up when we are pressed in ways that feel outside of our control. When this happens, we are often led to act in ways inconsistent with a heart of faith and integrity. Of course, in our better moments, we can see the situation clearly, but in those moments, things seem murkier. They seem more difficult to discern. And as Christians today, perhaps you have had something like that happen, and this intuitive heart response can be quite troubling to you. You may be thinking that after becoming a Christian, you should somehow be beyond such examples of faithlessness in your life. You find yourself making decision after decision that reflects a way that you did things before knowing Christ, and it can be pretty exasperating. And so if that's you, let me encourage you. In your life, you came from somewhere very specific. You lived some number of years of your life not knowing the Lord, at least not personally. You had ways of relating to your world that represented your effort of making meaning of your circumstances. You were not a Christian simply because you were raised in a Christian environment. God had to save you. You had a whole host of ways that you responded to circumstances apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not as if these patterns simply disappear when you become a believer. But in Jesus Christ, you 
have been declared holy and righteous. Part of the beauty of the gospel is that now in your day-to-day life, you are actually being made holy through the working of the Holy Spirit. But this is a process that takes time. It is something that is not always reflected when you are thrust into a situation that provokes responses that look like your former way of living. And just as it happened to Abram, it happens to us. And so with Abram operating with this kind of mixed motivation, he seeks to employ a partially true story. He was, Abram, he was Sarai's half-sister, as we will learn in Genesis chapter 20, but he presents this narrative in an effort to protect against the perceived threat against the promise of God. And so Abram, Sarai, and all of their people enter into Egypt and enact their plan, presenting Sarah as Abram's sister, not his wife. Once they enter into the country, things do go as Abram feared, as we see in verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. But notice that instead of Sarai being described here as Abram's wife, she is simply the woman. This helps us to see more of Abram's motivation and how it represents a lack of faithfulness in his circumstances. But something unexpected also happens as well. So notable is Sarai's beauty that word reaches the house of Pharaoh. And surprise, she's actually brought into Pharaoh's house to be one of his wives. Look at verse 15. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, there is significant debate among scholars about what actually happened to Sarai in this situation. Was she simply brought into Pharaoh's house, into his harem, into the place where his many wives would have lived and put on a kind of roster to be presented at a later point to Pharaoh? Or was she actually brought into an intimate relationship as one of Pharaoh's wives? The text doesn't tell us. I will take the former interpretation as most likely. Sarai was brought into Pharaoh's house with the intent of her becoming one of his wives, but there was no further interaction to this point in their relationship. But whatever interpretation we take, either way, she enters Pharaoh's house. And that meant significant material gain for Abram. In an ancient Near Eastern culture, Abram being Sarai's brother would have meant Abram being Sarai's authority. And that meant a significant dowry gift given for her to come into Pharaoh's house. And so we read in verse 16 that for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. While Sarai has entered Pharaoh's house, Abram has become very wealthy in return. But I want us to see what has actually happened in this exchange. Remember back to chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God promises him, God promises Abram, I will make you into a great nation, and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And in the passage here, we see Abram ostensibly acting in the interest of this promise, even though he's motivated by means of deception through fear. And while his safety is preserved, which seems to keep the promise alive, 
and he receives significant remuneration through material blessing when Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's house, now the promise is threatened in another way. How can Abram become the father of a nation when his wife isn't in the picture? To put it another way, Abram, by interfering in order to protect God's promise, actually becomes a threat to it himself. His corrupted faith highlights a significant theme that stretches throughout Scripture. Where God says something must be received by faith, that cannot be achieved by human effort, either by support or interference. And so, of course, God will ensure that his promise is fulfilled regardless of human influence, which leads us to verse 17, where we see the intervention. Verse 17 tells us that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Again, note the parallels to the Exodus account. The same word is used here for plague that will be used later in Exodus to describe what happened to Pharaoh's house in that era. Just as God intervened in Egypt in the time of the Exodus, so too does he take action here. The implication for Israel as they heard this would have been clear. God is intervening decisively in view of his covenant promise. He will not allow human interference to disrupt his plan of redemption. Where Abram sought to protect himself, he unintentionally put Sarah at risk. And we will see God protect Abram, but also Sarah as well. Pharaoh at this point though, provides an interesting contrast to Abram. Have you noticed it? Abram was the recipient of God's promise. And as we will see repeatedly throughout the Genesis narrative, Abram truly was a man whose life was characterized by faith. Yet in this episode, as we have seen, Abram does not walk by faith, the faith that will otherwise mark his later life. Instead, he is actually someone whose example we would do well to resist. Pharaoh, on the other hand, responds to his circumstances in a morally upright way. What are we to make of this? One possible way for us to understand the dichotomy is to recognize that God does not choose a person on the basis of his or her native or preceding righteousness. Abram was not called because of his record of faithfulness before knowing God. It was quite the opposite. He responded with faith in light of his calling. And in the same way, Pharaoh was able to respond with a demonstration of greater morality, at least in these moments, even though he clearly was not a believer in Yahweh. So in this case, Pharaoh's morality serves to highlight the irony it is he that acts in the interest of God's promise and not Abram. And so we see Pharaoh offer a stinging rebuke to Abram's faithlessness through his deceit. He directly addresses Abram's ploy in verses 18 and 19. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife. In other words, why did you lie to me, Abram? Why did you present her as your sister and bring this judgment upon me and my house? So about a decade ago, I was in Italy with my lovely wife. 
and I was staying at a bed and breakfast on a cliffside overlooking the sea. Can you imagine that? Sounds better than this little room right here, right now. Anyways, I was on a trip that was long enough that I needed to do laundry. And about two nights before we were going to leave, I decided this is the night I need to do this. I had noticed there was a washing machine on the premises. I hadn't asked the innkeeper if I could use it, um, but I decided what's the worst that could happen? So I put my laundry into the washing machine and get it going. And it's one of these kind of front opening jobs, not like the fancy high efficiency one, like the old, I'm in the middle of country Italy kind of washing machine. And I don't really know when the cycle is supposed to end. And so I go into the kitchen where the washing machine was kept and I check it and I open the door. You know what happened? Whoosh, all the water in the chamber poured out onto this tile floor in the kitchen. Thankfully, it was tile. I took all of the towels in the kitchen, got everything cleaned up, figured out my mistake, kept doing laundry and added another cycle, hung everything up outside on the clotheslines and just said, okay, I'm sure it'll be okay. The next morning I get up, Amy and I are going about our day. The woman who runs this B&B says nothing. And I think, okay, I'm in the clear. Go to bed, wake up the next morning. And as we were preparing to leave, this small five foot woman looked me in the eyes and said, you used my washing machine. And I said, yes, I did. And she said, you did not ask. And she kept looking at me. And then after an unreasonable amount of silence, <laughs> she put her hand out to shake it and said, goodbye. I got on the train and I had never spent two hours on the way to the next city with a greater amount of shame for something so small. She rebuked the fire out of me. She was the one in the moral right. I don't think she was a Christian. I was the one here like celebrating graduating seminary by deceitfully doing something that I just needed to ask. There's something about this that captures a little bit of what's going on. I can't imagine what Abram would have felt because he tried to do something. Pharaoh called him out on it and proved a really important truth. Even unbelievers can speak truth that God will use to address our need for change. But there's another element I'd like us to notice in the story. And we're speculating somewhat here, but why would Pharaoh rebuke Abram so directly? If it really was the case that Abram's life was in jeopardy, had he come to Egypt and acknowledged honestly who Sarai actually was, if he really was at such a risk, it would be far more likely that the discovery of his deception would have brought about his demise rather than merely honestly presenting the situation. And so if this is indeed what is happening here, it illustrates a truth that we also see throughout scripture. Our fears rarely in their fulfillment mirror the threat they seem at their first appearance. 
And so God intervenes in view of his promise. Pharaoh is afflicted. Abram is humiliated. But Sarai is preserved. And this brings us to our last observation about this passage, the preservation. Beginning about halfway through verse 19 and through verse 20, this portion of the narrative concludes. And Pharaoh continues by saying to Abram, now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And so Pharaoh expels Abram from Egypt. But as he does, he ensures by attaching these men to their company that no harm is gonna come to either Abram or Sarai. They, along with everyone else who came with them into Egypt, as well as those who became part of their company while there, they leave the nation and they prepare to journey back to the land of Canaan. And so the story continues. The promise is secured. And there is one main truth that is reinforced by Abram's sojourn into Egypt, as the commentator John Salhamer will put it. God alone can bring about the divine promise. And the failures of humankind cannot stand in the way. The promise to Abram remains, and the story of redemption goes on. And so for us today, as we reflect on this story, how can we glean something useful for us from a narrative like this? So often, we read a passage in the Old Testament that has to do with a particular character, and we're tempted merely to moralize the story as a way of saying, be like Abram, or don't be like Abram. Reducing a passage to a character study like this misses the redemptive edge that such a text has for us today. As we think about the contribution it makes to the overall storyline of Christ. But at the same time, it can be tempting to only consider the overarching plotline of scripture and thus miss the practical theological richness that such a passage has for us in the present. So in a brief effort to counter those two threats in the way we would interpret a passage like this, I'd like us to consider some of the theological lessons we can learn and how those lessons may be applied to our lives. So first, let's think about what we learn from God in a passage, learn about God in a passage like this. For one, this passage reveals how God's promises are fixed on the basis of his character. Beginning with this chapter of scripture and continuing all the way through until the coming of Christ, we see emphatically communicated that it is God who brings about the saving work of his Messiah. While there will always be different circumstances that seem to jeopardize this promise, God is intervening in human history and thus guarantees that his promise will live on. Second, from this passage, we see as well how God's promises then can neither be thwarted nor protected through human intervention. Abram's mistake here will not be the only time that a human responds to a similar threat against what God has said will come to pass. Sometimes different people in the Bible take matters into their own hands, such as Saul in 1 Samuel 13 where he impatiently offers an improper sacrifice instead of listening to God's words through Samuel with the result that he loses his kingship. But at other points, we see people putting their own interests above God's purposes 
appearing by their actions to threaten the continuation of his promise of redemption, as Abram did. Some examples would include the efforts of Judah's sons in Genesis 37 and 38 to avoid their obligation to bear children through their deceased brother's wife, Tamar. And as we will learn later this year, God was not caught off guard by these circumstances, but rather actually used Tamar's illicit relationship with Judah to continue the line of his descendants from whom would one day come the Lord Jesus himself. The point for us to see is that what God promises will happen, will happen just as he has promised. But this leads to a third way that this passage teaches us about God's character. Narrative sections like these are not just about the characters they involve. Every successive episode in Scripture is part of one long story of how God's promises, specifically the covenant promise to Abram, finds their utmost fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. And what's remarkable about the story of Genesis is how specifically it relates to the story of Jesus. Whether it is the parallels that we see in this passage to the Exodus event in the history of Israel, an event which pointed to the greater Moses who was to come, or whether it was the connection last week as we saw between passages like Genesis 12 and Galatians 3, that describe in specific detail how Abram's ultimate offspring must be understood as Jesus Christ, these shorter narrative units make up the larger acts of God's story, and they all lead to the climactic point of Jesus' coming for the forgiveness of our sins and for the restoration of the entire world. But in addition to what this passage teaches us theologically about the character of God and his promises, as we said, it also demonstrates truths that are relevant to the way we understand our own lives. And so for one, we can see that human faithfulness can be remarkably fluid. In Abram's case, we recognize that it is possible for a person to walk by faith or unbelief in successive episodes and still be reckoned as a God-fearer. To be sure, Abram was not walking by faith in this passage, and there will be other passages down the road that illustrate a similar tendency. But this doesn't mean that Abram was a non-believer. Instead, it reveals that Abram was subject to the continuing influence of sin in his heart, just as we are. And so we must see the similarities. As we take a step back and consider comprehensively, we can acknowledge that Godward change occurs by degrees. It happens little by little. This means that we have to take a long view as we consider the change that God is working in our hearts. We could call this the long game of discipleship. You are being changed, but you are not yet there. And as long as sin is present in the world, it will also be present in your hearts. And so this means we all find ourselves susceptible to the kind of influence that drove Abram's choices in this passage. But it is here that we can take heart. We are the recipients of all that God promised to Abraham. God declared to him that through, all, through him, all nations of the world would be blessed. This blessing would come through Abram's offspring, and we see in Scripture that this offspring was none other than Jesus Christ himself. 
And as Paul will affirm to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for in him all the promises of God find their yes. Jesus is the one who both proves God's promises and also redeems our remaining sinfulness. What's amazing is that on this side of the cross, we don't have to wonder whether God's promises will come true because they already have. We have seen with certainty his goodness expressed, which means we can draw near by faith as we put our trust again and again in the promises of God, fully fulfilled and expressed through Christ. Unlike Abram, Jesus never wavered or equivocated. He never sought to protect himself and so jeopardize the promise of God. He never put himself first instead of leaving the most vulnerable to fend for themselves. He assumed responsibility for the weakest of all people. He took upon himself the very thing that Abram most feared so that by his death and resurrection, we can become partakers in the promises of God. And so on this foundation, we have hope that sustains us amid our own weaknesses and mistakes. We don't have to seek to add to what God has done or what he promises he will do. Because of Christ's finished work on the cross, we don't have to wonder, will your promises prove true? Will your goodness be seen? We instead can rest in this work to see the incredible plan and purpose of God and to follow him with our lives so that he will be glorified and we will be strengthened as we walk in him. Would you pray with me to this end? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even through this story, we can rejoice that Jesus has come. We thank you as well that we can learn about your character and your heart as we look at this account from our spiritual ancestor, Abram. Help us as we seek to honor you with our lives in light of the finished work of Christ. Strengthen us to receive from you the grace that has been given through our Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.